Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Devraga Personal Finance, episode 93. Now, I'm well rested. I had a few weeks off this podcast, and I was fortunate enough to speak to the White Coat Investor um, last week that got released so if you haven't listened to that episode, go to whitecoatinvestor.com and have a listen to that episode. It was basically about um, me talking about the Australian healthcare system and a little bit about finances when it comes to doctors in general. So, um, and I think that was very useful, particularly for our North American colleagues who may be wondering how other health systems around the world function. So I found that episode quite interesting, intriguing, and hope all of you have a chance to download and listen to it, and that can be downloaded at whitecoatinvestor.com. But in episode 93, in this episode, I'll focus on a 12-month update of owning an electric vehicle. Now, I bought a Tesla Model 3 Standard Range Plus 12 months ago, and I'll do a deep dive into the cost of owning an EV, and then go specifically into the features of the Model 3 and some quirks as well, and some annoying things about the car. Believe it or not, Tesla is not perfect. I have had some annoyances with the car, so I'll go into a little bit about that. For those of you that are new to the channel, remember the aims here. There are three aims. The first one is to be educated about personal finance and become financially literate. The second thing is to be empowered and um, empowered with that knowledge to be able to speak at a level that you can understand in, that others can understand in. So when you go into an appointment with your accountant or your financial advisor, you have enough financial literacy and financial knowledge to be able to speak at a comparable level. And the third thing is about being entertained. Now, just a disclaimer, remember, I'm not a financial advisor. I'm not an accountant. I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions you want to make after listening to my episodes direct your advisor and have professionals look at it. In other words, don't make decisions based on what I say. I'm just a random guy. If you're stuck on what to do though, in terms of broad principles, here are some simple steps to get you in the right track when it comes to saving, investing, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one is pay yourself first. Make sure you take 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside. If you can't afford 20% of after-tax income, start with 5%, start with 10%, whatever you can afford, but make sure you get into the habit of doing this early. Step two, you take that money and you invest it, ideally into something that you know or understand or want to understand. For me, I know the stock market, I understand the stock market, I invest in the stock market via index funds. Step three is you'll get dividends from those investments. Make sure you take those dividends and reinvest them. The power of compounding is fascinating and it's real. Step four, do it for the long term, not just five, 10 or even 15 years, which is what the traditional investors do. I'm talking 20, 30 or even 40 plus years. 
the longer you invest, the longer you leave it, the more you reinvest, the more powerful the power of compounding is. And step five, my favorite, is make sure you don't have to manually do a lot of these tasks. Because if you automate it, you're less likely to forget, you're more likely to stick to the plan. And if you did these simple steps over the long term, you're more likely to have more money than you'll ever need. Money is just a tool. It's not going to bring you happiness. And the most important thing about money is to use it as a tool to make your life a little bit better, but most importantly, make the lives of people around you better. Now to the main topic. Um, and uh, actually, before we get on to the main topic, I want to address a couple of questions that I've had recently from colleagues and friends. Um, and this question is about geo-arbitrage. What is it? And why is it potentially very powerful? So this question comes from Sonny from Melbourne. So thank you very much uh, when we were discussing his plans. And also it comes from a mate who's a surgeon. Now, what is geo-arbitrage? Geo-arbitrage is when you make the same income or similar income, but move to a location which has a lower cost of living. And that can be within the same city in terms of different suburbs, can be within the same state, different states, or even different countries or continents. So for example, during retirement, you may wish to move overseas to a low cost country like Thailand, Indonesia, South America, etc., yet make a similar amount of money, but have your money travel much further in those low cost countries. That's geo-arbitrage. I talk about geo-arbitrage in depth in episode 26, uh, and I'll talk about the different types of arbitrage, not just geographical arbitrage, such as political, risk, fixed income, etc. So if you're interested in the concept of arbitrage, go back and listen to that episode in number 26. The aim here is to live a great lifestyle, mm -hmm. making the same money as your money travels much further. The other aim is to reach financial independence and freedom sooner. So you can do geo-arbitrage while you're working, so you can reach financial independence and freedom sooner, or you can do it after you retire. That is, you make all that money, then you want to spend the money in a lower-cost country, so that way you can live a lavish lifestyle. So the relocation can also be permanent or it can be temporary. So most people do this temporarily to get their finances in order quicker. So let's use an example. Amy is a 35-year-old registered nurse working in cardiology. Her income is relatively standard across the country, minor variations between the states, but not much, at around $100,000 per year. She currently lives in Sydney, and the median home price in Sydney is around a million dollars. She decides to move to Adelaide or even rural South Australia, where median home prices are much lower, around $600,000 or much lesser in the country, Victoria, um, country South Australia. And the cost of living, so travel, no tolls, cheaper rent, everything comes down in that state, in South Australia compared to New South Wales, in Adelaide compared to Sydney. She could work extra shifts and increase her income because there's relative undersupply of nurses in Adelaide, and she could save up money quicker to buy a house or start investing earlier. Whereas if she stayed in Sydney, the price of housing is so high cost of travel is high, tolls are high, public transport costs are high, so her ability to save extra money is less. And of course, in Sydney, there are a lot more nurses around than there are 
uh, in Adelaide. So in terms of doing locum shifts and agency shifts, she may not be able to get as much as she perhaps could in smaller cities where the relative undersupply of labor means that your skill, depending on what skill you have, of course, is relatively valuable. So geo-arbitrage is something that you may be doing or have done before, and it's something to understand and something to try and capitalize on to your advantage. Um, and it's also something to think about a factor in in your retirement. Now to the main topic, um, I'm going to talk about the ownership and cost of ownership specifically about an electric vehicle. And I'm going to use my personal experience to try and put forward how much money potentially people can save if they switch over from their internal combustion engine car, ICE car, to an electric vehicle. Now, I've had some great news in the last seven days, and that is my mate Jay from medical school, uh, who I still keep in contact with. Um, we recently smoke, uh, spoke, sorry, not smoke, <laughs> we don't smoke. Um, so we recently um, spoke on the phone, and it was just uh, amazing to hear that he has made his EV purchase. So he actually bought a Tesla, which is fantastic. Um, and he'll be getting it, I think, in the next week or two. So I'm really looking forward to him sitting in that car and absolutely enjoying it. It's going to be a blast as much as it's been for me in the last 12 months. So congratulations to Jay. So what car did I buy? I bought the Tesla Model 3 Standard Range Plus, which is a rear wheel drive and pearl white color, which is basically the basic color that was free. Um, and the stats are this. After 12 months, I've driven 57,501 kilometers, so I drive a lot, and I've used 8,454 kilowatt hours on an average of about 147 watt hours per kilometer, which is kind of like your liters per 100 kilometers, roughly. Um, the cost of purchase for me was $66,000 plus GST. There was no luxury car tax. I was very lucky to avoid that. Uh, and I think the Tesla pricing at the time was actually very good. They didn't um, price it so that the luxury car tax applied. Autopilot was standard, and uh, but not full self-driving technology. And I'll talk about that a bit later in the episode. And with every Tesla, there is a free wall connector, which is the charger that they give, which you can actually get installed at your own cost, of course, but they give the charger for free with the car. So you don't need to buy the charger. I think in other countries, you have to buy the charger. In Australia, they include it. Um, the current cost of a Tesla compared to my purchase price 12 months ago is actually significantly higher. The current Model 3 Standard Range Plus was $79,556, um, and that's likely due to the low Aussie dollar in the economic state here. Price may have come down um, once we start getting the so-called Made in China Model 3 variants as well. Now, the most common question that I get asked is, how far can I travel? What is the electric range of the Model 3 standard range? So when I bought it for 100% charge, um, it's 384 kilometers rated range. So on the website, you may notice it says, you know, 425 or 460 kilometers. That is the optimal range. That's a bit like when you go buy an ICE car and it actually says, you know, the liters per 100 kilometers is 4.5 when you actually drive the car you're not going to get 4.5 liters per 100 kilometers in terms of petrol efficiency so this is kind of like that so the rated range when i first bought it i charged it to 100 percent it was around 384 kilometers now after 12 months 
when I charge it to 100%, um, I get anywhere between 364 to 374 kilometers. Um, so it's still pretty good. So I've lost maximum 20 kilometers of range, but really I've only lost about 10 kilometers of range. And surprisingly, that happened to me at around the 30,000 kilometer odometer rating, um, not recently. So that 10 kilometers that I lost happened early on in the life of the car, but then I haven't really lost any range in the last six months at all. And I think if you have a look at the stats and have a look at the battery technology that Tesla have, that's actually quite common. So if you research it and YouTube it and learn about the car, the battery range drops down in the first year significantly, and then it sort of plateaus and doesn't actually drop significantly thereafter. Now, some of the things that I've noticed in the 12 months of ownership in terms of range, what actually affects range, um, is how you drive the car. So if you're flooring it every single time, um, it's going to use up a lot more range. Very similar to an ICE car. If you're flooring it, then your efficiency of petrol and diesel is significantly less. The weather, surprisingly, the weather makes a big difference for battery range. So in winter, for example, I got the lowest range. Um, in summer, I got the highest range. So the battery seems to work more effectively in warmer weather. And of course, the terrain, whether you're going uphill, downhill, flat surfaces, etc., and whether you use autopilot um, or not. So what was interesting that I found was autopilot, I thought was extremely efficient before I purchased the car. What I've noticed is autopilot is actually not efficient when it comes to driving. So, and the reason for that is when you're driving on autopilot, it doesn't seem to use much regenerative power. And what that is, is that when you let go of the accelerator, then you use the you know, kinetic energy, which gets transformed into electrical energy and gets um, you know, regenerated back into the battery. Because there's not much of that action happening in autopilot, then you're not using much regen. And um, whereas when you're driving by yourself, you kind of use regen quite a lot. So you, I hardly use the brakes when I'm driving without autopilot. In fact, it's very, very rare. Even if there's a red traffic light stop, I often just time my accelerator release. So I don't need to actually use the brakes whatsoever. And that has very, very good positive effects on things like brake wear, etc. Um, the other thing what I've noticed is that when you drive an electric car on a freeway, it is taking a lot more energy. Whereas when you drive a car in the city, it actually doesn't take that much energy. And again, that's to do with the regenerative power as well, because in the city, you're more likely to stop and start. So electric vehicles are very efficient in stop-start traffic. ICE vehicles, on the other hand, are very inefficient in stop-start vehicles. So um, I found that when I drive long distances, I use a lot more power, whereas when I drive short distances, um, I tend not to use that much power because I'm stopping and starting tanks to traffic or traffic signals, etc., etc. The other common thing that I get asked about is charging infrastructure. So um, for Teslas, um, you can get the charger installed at home at a cost of about $500 to $1,000, depending on which provider that you choose. Um, I just chose Jet Charge, which are the major providers in Melbourne, and they're very efficient, safe, effective, and they give you a certificate once installed, so that's good. Um, you can also use public charge stations. Um, you can find out about um, your local shopping centers, etc. You can also use superchargers. To be honest, I've only used a supercharger, uh, I think, twice in the entire time that I've owned this car, mainly because I don't need to use a supercharger because most of the time I charge overnight. 
um, and you can get a charge rate of about 500 to 1,000 kilometres per hour, which is significant. The home charger charge rate is around 42 kilometres per hour, depending on whether you've got single phase. And if you've got three phase, you might get up to 80 kilometres an hour of charge. Um, in public charge stations, you can get up to you know 250 to 500 kilometres, depending on the type of charger that's installed. And I use an app called PlugShare, which is actually very good. If you download it, have a look. It gives you all the free charging and paid charging stations around Australia, including supercharging stations as well. And of course, you can just plug it in to your normal power outlet. In fact, that's what I did for the first week after I bought the car because I couldn't get installation. It was so popular because I bought it when the car was first released and to get a charge charger installed was actually quite difficult because a lot of electricians were very busy, particularly jet charge. Um, I just plugged it into the normal socket and I got about 12 kilometers per hour and I actually didn't really need the charger installed at the time. And I was driving about 150 to 180 kilometers per day. Now, my daily drive, um, I think this is really important. The more you drive, the more efficient your electric car becomes in terms of cost efficiency. I drive about 180 to 250 kilometers per day. So I drive a lot. And um, one of the best things about this car is that I plug it in at my destination or at my house and it's ready and waiting for me. They've got scheduled charging. They've got um, scheduled departure. So it kind of knows when I'm leaving and it's ready to go. So this morning, for example, I had to be somewhere at 9am. So basically at 8am, I set it, it was ready to go. And um, I just got in the car and just drove off. Um, I plug it in at work. Um, I plug it in at public charging stations. And I also plug it in at home. Most of my charging happens in free public charging stations because it's conveniently located where I work. So that's the biggest advantage for me is because I charge a lot of times outside of my house. Um, I also utilize low cost electricity after hours. So we've got a peak and off peak electricity plan. That's really important. If you're thinking about an EV, you need to work out your electricity costs. So I don't charge it during daytime because I'm at work and I charge it mainly at nighttime. And I use my solar panels to energize my house during the day because the best time to use solar is to make sure that you use it at the time of power generation. I don't have battery storage technology in my house. That's something that I'm looking at. I'm doing some cost, you know, benefit analysis to see that whether it would be actually be efficient to use. At this stage, the mathematics and economics doesn't add up, but I reckon in the next few years, it will start adding up in terms of battery efficiency and cost in terms of cost per kilowatt um, hour. So let's look at the statistics. So this is going to be the financial part of the podcast, and I'll go on and describe some of the features of the Tesla and also some of the unintended consequences and some of the quirks and also some of the annoyances of the Model 3. But let's look at the financial element of this. I want to get that out of, out of the way as quickly as possible. So firstly, let's look at how much it would have cost if I actually drove the amount of driving that I do using my ICE car. And I'm going to use my last ICE car, which was a European car, which was very, very efficient as a benchmark. And it was a diesel. So it gave me up to 800 kilometers per tank of diesel. And the cost of filling it was around $70. It was actually more. Um, these are all basic assumptions. Um, I wouldn't routinely get 800 kilometers per tank from my previous European car. But let's take the higher average number because I want to skew this in favor of the ICE car to see if the Tesla comes out on top. Now, the purchase price for my previous car was around $60 plus GST, uh, sorry, $60,000 plus GST. So the cost was very, very similar. 
And um, if I took how much I drive, which is 57,501 kilometres, divide that by 800 kilometres per tank, I would have had to fill 71.8 fuel tanks. That's how much full tanks that I would have had to fill in order to get that much mileage in terms of odometer reading. And each tank at 70 bucks is going to cost me $5,031.33 in fuel costs alone in one year. That is going to be my cost of filling in the petrol or the diesel for my previous ICE car. Now, in terms of service, um, I kept all my receipts. I looked at my service. It was around $400 per service, which is actually pretty cheap. Um, and the service was only needed every 20,000 kilometers. And most European cars are around 20,000. Most non-European cars are around 10,000. Um, so the overall servicing cost for me was around $1,150 in that 12 months. That's what I would have spent. Maintenance, uh, wheel alignment, oil changes, gearings, whatever, was around 400 bucks. These are all miscellaneous expenses. You know, when you go take an ICE car to a service, it's always not just the service. There's always something else that you need to fix. And I calculated around $400 over 12 months is what I spent in terms of the cost of maintaining the car. Tires. Um, now, I, I'm not going to use tires as a cost factor. I actually changed my tires in my ICE car before 60,000 kilometers. But I'm going to assume no new tires were required because, again, I want to skew this against the Tesla as much as I possibly can. Windscreen was actually replaced with my previous European car because I chipped it and that was free. Thank you, Cominsure. And insurance cost was around $1,400 for that car, which was reasonably expensive. So non-European cars, you're looking at about $800 to 1000 per year. But this one was around $1,400, bucks, which, um, which, I thought was, which I thought was a little bit on the expensive side. So the total cost of running an ICE car for 12 months based on these analysis and based on my statistics was $6,581.33. And that excludes insurance um, because, you know, I, I don't want to include insurance because there's too much variability there. I want to just use the odometer readings, the fuel efficiencies and basic servicing, which is roughly the same across most ICE cars, particularly European and non-European. So $6,581.33 was my cost of running an ICE car for 12 months based on my driving habits. Now let's compare that to the Tesla. So again, 57,501 kilometer odometer reading using 8,454 kilowatt hours of energy, where per kilowatt hour of energy is around 15 cents for me. So if I charged at home at night off peak, 15 cents is off peak rates, it would have cost me $1,268 to charge my Tesla to do 57,501 kilometers of range. Now, this assumes I charged the car only at home. And you can see the fuel cost was around five grand for my ICE car. So already I'm saving $4,000, okay? Now, I calculated that 57% of my charging occurs at destination for free. Uh, and I think that's one of the factors that I had to factor in to calculate this because that was an added advantage. In fact, it would have been close to 75%, but um, I've sort of, again, calculated a conservative estimate of 57%. So that means out of the cost of charging the car, which was 1268 bucks, you need to take away $722.76. So my actual cost of charging for the 12 months 
is only $545.24. That's one-tenth the cost of the ICE car in terms of fuel for a similar comparable price of purchase. The service, so interestingly, after about 30,000 kilometres, I got a bit worried, so I took it to the Tesla dealership and I said, surely you need to check this thing because, you know, I've been driving it like mad. In six months, I've done about 30,000 kilometres. And they said to me, no, it doesn't need any specific servicing. Um, And, you know, have you changed your windshield wiper fluid? And, you know, have you done, you know, basic car cleaning and blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. And I said, yeah, I've done all that. And they said, well, you don't really need to bring it in for regular servicing. The car will tell you when it needs to service. So servicing for the Tesla, so far, I've spent $0 in terms of actual servicing. And it kind of makes sense because electric cars don't have many moving parts. So if you have less moving parts, you have less chances of parts breaking down. And if you have less chances of parts breaking down, you have less chances of actually having to service them or repairing them. So again, an unintended consequence of driving an EV is you don't need to service it. Maintenance. So, of course, windshield wiper fluid and all that sort of stuff. Um, The biggest maintenance for me over the last 12 months was $35 for replacing the left front aero wheels because I went through a puddle fast on autopilot at 100 kilometers an hour and the front left aero wheels literally flung off and I couldn't find them. It happened on the freeway. So I had to go and get that changed. Now, that only cost me 35 bucks. And I think most of it was labor. I think the actual cost of the aero wheels was only $15. So if you own a Tesla, don't buy it in the black market or online or eBay. Just go to Tesla. They do it at cost price. Tires. Now, this is the truth. I have not changed my tires and I've done 57,000 plus kilometers. In fact, I've actually crossed over to 60,000 kilometers. The data that I've used here was when I first sort of thought about the episode a couple of weeks ago, but I've now crossed over the 60,000 kilometer barrier and I have not had to change the tyres. I've actually booked in to see one of my local tyre places in the near future to see if I actually need to do a wheel alignment or change my tyres or rotate, whatever it is. So I'm looking forward to that. I reckon it's going to probably nearing the end of its lifespan, but at the moment it's got pretty good thread still, I think, so I'm going to keep going. And I confirm that this is probably the furthest that I've driven without having to actually do anything with the tyres. Um, I think I might have got about 80,000 from my Mazda 6 back in the day, but uh, this is pretty up there. Repairs. For some reason, I keep chipping windshields when I buy new cars. I've done it for every single brand new car that I've bought. So yes, I've chipped the Tesla windshield and that was replaced for free. So thank you, GIO, which is my insurance company. And I also spent about 10 bucks a month for software in terms of satellite maps, live traffic updates, which is the Tesla premium service. It's just a subscription service, which I do. And brakes wise, hardly used. Again, regenerative braking because you don't use the brakes. You know, you've got about 90% spare brake left after 60,000 kilometers. Again, unintended consequence, positive consequence of driving an electric vehicle. And of course, insurance. Um, Recently, I got several hundred dollars off insurance just because I rang them up because it was coming up for renewal. Um, it's around sort of 1400 to 1600 bucks um, comprehensive, but they chuck in unlimited car hire because that's something that I got because I was a bit worried about reliability of the Tesla before I bought. So I wanted to have unlimited car hire 
to make sure that if my car does break down or has repairs or insurance or whatever it is, I have a car so I can actually go to work because I need to work because my, you know, I like my work and, you know, my workplaces will suffer if they lost a, um, if they lost a doctor. So the total 12-month cost, the grand total, including the repairs and including the software $10 fee, um, was $700.24. So the total savings then compared to the ice car was, remember the ice car was $6,581.33 minus my cost for the Tesla in terms of running expenses was uh, $700.24. My actual savings in the last 12 months would have been, had I driven an ice car, would have been 5,881. Sorry, had I, had, I, had I not driven the ice car, which I haven't, of course. So $5,881 is my actual saving in the last 12 months based on my driving experience, based on my previous ice car, and based on my current EV that I'm driving. Prior to buying the car, when I did some calculations, I predicted around $6,000 in savings. So... It's been absolutely spot on in terms of predictions. So I'm really happy with my savings as driving an EV. So hopefully that gives you a little bit of, I guess, insight into some of the costs associated with buying and living and driving an EV. And I have done previous, you know, updates in my podcast series. So go back and have a listen if you want, where I've given you a 30,000 kilometer update, etc. But my average use of electricity in terms of running this car hasn't changed in the last six to eight months. It's been relatively the same and we're coming up to, you know, we are in spring at the moment. So I bought the car on the 27th of September, 2019. And, uh, you know, after 12 months, it's been a rough saving of about $6,000. So hopefully that gives you a bit of an idea about, um, the cost of running an EV. What about reliability? Um, look, Ice cars that I've ever owned have been extremely reliable. I've never really had any breakdowns, um, and that's because I serviced them perfectly. Um, so I've never really had any major problems with my previous ice car, so kudos to them. Surprisingly, the Tesla has been also very reliable. And I say surprisingly because I was expecting many hardware problems. I was expecting software problems, Um this has been probably the most surprising element of owning and driving an EV. Now, I have had minor software problems, so sometimes the rear vision camera goes black, um, and I've had to do a, what's called a soft reset of the car and a hard reset of the car when the screen wasn't functional. But that takes about a minute, and it's done, and I do it while I'm driving, actually. You can actually do it while you're driving. You can actually drive with the screen going completely blank by resetting it if you wanted to. And it's not a major inconvenience and um, uh, you do get software updates. So it's not a big deal. Um, so surprisingly, I am pleasantly surprised as to how reliable the Tesla Model 3 Standard Range Plus has been. So that was unexpected. Software issues. Uh, again, I've received about 10 software updates over-the-air update since purchase, probably more actually, but around 10, about once a month. Uh, I parked the car in the garage. Um, it connects to my Wi-Fi. Uh, it checks for any software updates regularly, and it just downloads it. 
and once it downloads it I set it for update overnight because I don't want it to update while I'm at work because the one of the things is if you're updating your software you can't drive the car for about half an hour so if you're on call or something you want to make sure that um, that you know you have access to the car so I update the software after hours um, after about midnight and when I get up in the morning um, it's done and I get a bit of an alert saying I've got a new software and it tells me all the new features associated with the software um, so it's kind of similar to any phone or computer or tablet that which you may own where it just automatically updates your software and you get a bit of a message um, it sort of has that sort of Apple software update feel to it to be honest updates take about 25 minutes and um, the car can't be driven during the updates, so that's one of the disadvantages. Now, the other unexpected consequence, which I was half predicting, but um, wasn't predicting it to be such a major factor, was drive-time lethargy. So one of the things is I use the autopilot pretty much every single day. 80% of my drive is on autopilot, and um, I think that has significantly reduced my drive-time lethargy. And when I actually get into an ICE car or a car that doesn't have autopilot, so we've got a second car that's an ICE car, it's a seven-seater, beautiful car, doesn't have autopilot, my arms hurt because I have to hold the steering wheel and you have to center it in the lane. And there's a lot of concentration that you do while driving the car, which is, you know, quite, quite, um, I'm not going to say stressful, but it's a lot of work that you need to do. That's not to say that when you're driving the Tesla on autopilot that you're not fully concentrating. You still have to hold the steering wheel, etc. But, you know, the tension in your hands and the amount of concentration, the sort of real crazy concentration is, you know, doesn't have to be as intense. Uh, and the car is actually very good. The autopilot, surprisingly, functions extremely well in most conditions. And I drive in mountainous conditions, rural roads, um, roads that may have scant lane markings. Uh, I drive um, in rain, I've driven in hail, I've driven in fog, thick fog. And I have to say the ultrasonic sensors around the car are just amazing in terms of detecting things that I can't see with my eyes, particularly in heavy rain or fog. So um, I'm actually, again, another pleasant surprise of the car. I wasn't expecting it to be this good. I think other car companies like BMW and Mercedes, they call it Distronic, have autopilot as well. And my understanding is their systems are actually quite good. But from comparative point of view, from ex from sort of reviews that I've read and from, you know, auto reviews online on YouTube, etc. I think I have to say the Tesla seems to be the furthest ahead in terms of autopilot technology. Now, speeding. Um, yes, I've received a speeding fine in my Tesla. It's actually bloody easy to speed in the Tesla um, because the acceleration 0 to 100 is around 5 seconds in my car, which is the slowest Tesla around. Um, and that's the cheapest, slowest Model 3. The fastest Model 3 is 3 seconds. The fastest Model S and X is under 3 seconds. So how fast is the fastest Model 3? I did a paper test, uh, sorry, not the fastest, how fast is my slowest Model 3, I should say. I did a paper test, and basically what I did was I placed the paper on the back seat, uh, sorry, on the back, sort of, you know, back part of the seat, on the actual um, part where you lay your back on. And if you accelerate hard, the paper sticks to the 
backrest of the seat and only falls down to the seat when the car reaches you know, around the 100 k's an hour. So all the videos that you see on YouTube, um, yeah, when you actually do it in real life, you sort of feel this sort of urge and surge of the acceleration. And that's the slowest Tesla. And again, that was a surprising element of how fast this car potentially is. But speeding is a bad thing and you can easily get caught speeding because of the acceleration. Like if you if you just floor it from the traffic light and it's a 60 zone, you'll go past the 60 really, really quickly and you'll hit 80 and you'll lose three demerit points for a 20 kilometer speeding. So you've got to be a little bit careful with the car. So in terms of performance, how good is this car in terms of performance? Well, I actually checked the stats um, for the fastest M3, that is the Model 3 performance, which I don't have, I just have the cheapest one. The Model 3 performance is as fast, if not faster, than the Mercedes-Benz AMG E63, McLaren 675LT, Aerial Atom 500, AMG Mercedes GT, the Chevy Corvette Z06, the Honda NSX, the Porsche 911 Carrera. So the M3 performance is faster than those cars. So you're in good company if you own a M3 performance. And it's two hundred to $300,000 cheaper than any of those cars that I've mentioned. And it seats five people and it has full self-driving technology available. And if you kit it out, it's priced only at $122,000. Now, I say $122,000 only compared to a Mercedes-Benz AMG GT, which is close to half a million dollars. This car is a bargain. Now, I've talked about FSD. This is where we get into nitty-gritty of the actual M3. So what is FSD? FSD just stands for full self-driving technology. As it stands, all Teslas being built have full self-driving technology built in and capable for autonomous driving. But due to legislative barriers in Australia, autonomous driving is not allowed. You need to have humans in the car, etc., etc. So FSD just means that it's a staged approach to autonomy when it comes to Teslas. Um, and it has functions like navigate on autopilot, which basically means freeway entrance to freeway exit is completely on autopilot. Auto lane change. So it will predict and do the lane change for you based on your navigation settings. Um, and it's also got the full self-driving capability in terms of autonomy. It's an extra 10 grand. Uh, it used to be cheaper. I think it was around 6000 or $8,000 when I first bought it. I didn't, I didn't actually, sorry, when I first bought the car, I didn't actually buy the FSD. And basically the price has gone up and that's probably because of the AUD dollar being down. I think in the future, Tesla are moving towards a subscription model, although that hasn't really been finalized. Um, and I didn't buy it because... I didn't think it was that useful. And I think as other car companies catch up, FSD technology will become more mainstream and probably be cheaper. I may buy it in my next Tesla if I do buy it. From what I've seen and read and reviewed, it's a great technology, but it's not perfect yet. Now, charging infrastructure in Australia, how is it? So I drive 180 to 250 kilometers per day. So is charging infrastructure good enough? Um, First of all, you don't need to charge the car multiple times a day. Even the slowest and short-range M3 has enough range to get you to and from work for 90% of Aussies. Most people who drive to and from work or weekend driving will be fine without actually having home charging. 
oh, sorry, fine with home charging only. You don't need to have supercharging sessions, etc. And the infrastructure in Australia, again, I was actually quite surprised about it, is actually quite good, uh, which was surprising. Most shopping centres have um, Tesla chargers now uh, or EV chargers. Most workplaces have traditional plug points outside. Uh, you have companies like Charge Fox and private companies that have set up in public places so you can pay for public charging. Most holiday destinations have free public charging, hotels, etc., or EV charge points. Restaurants and businesses are installing them because they've realised customers are requesting them. Uh, there's usually dedicated parking in most shopping centres for EVs. If you're charging, please don't park your EV in a charge spot if you're not charging. That's one of my bugbears. And there's, of course, the Tesla Supercharger Network. Most eastern states, basically, it's not a problem. You can drive from Adelaide all the way up to Brisbane, if not to northern Queensland, on Supercharger Networks. And uh, most public charging points are actually free. In fact, a lot of my char charging, like I said, is actually free. 57% of my charging is free. Uh, and I use an app called PlugShare, which I found very, very useful. And it gives you a bit of an insight as to whether the actual charge point is currently being used or whether it's broken or whether that needs repairs, etc. So it gives you a bit of an insight as to you turn up at a location and you find the charge points are not working or fully occupied. Now, I want to talk about Tesla Battery Day, which was on the 22nd of September, and hence the delay in releasing this episode because I wanted to wait until I found out what they actually said. Basically, the summary is there's bigger individual cells, which means they're storing more energy into the batteries, and if they scale it, they could reduce the cost by up to 56%. But this is not coming uh, anywhere near Australia until probably 2022-2023. Now, autonomy, um, they reckon, will just be the normal. That'll be the normal in the future, autonomous driving. Um, and interestingly, they mentioned about data, where they collected data that if a car was driven by humans, then the accident rate was 2.1 accidents per million miles. But if the car was driven by a Tesla autopilot system, then the accidents was 0.3 accidents per million miles. So essentially, as expected, computers are safer and do things better than humans, which is not unexpected. Uh, but there's always that sort of initial driving experience where you get a bit nervous when you first use any sort of autopilot or autonomous driving. Having said that, to me, it only took me about 15 minutes to let go of the steering wheel and just relax. When I first bought the car, I was a little bit nervous for about 15 minutes. Now I don't even think about it. It's just automatic. Now, generally speaking, there are some exciting times ahead for EVs in general. Um, you know, I'm actually quite surprised why the other automated or Auto companies haven't caught up. Tesla is way ahead in this, but I think they will catch up, particularly Mercedes. They've just released the EQC, which is fantastic. I think the future for EVs is great. Even if you don't believe in climate change and all that sort of stuff, from a financial money perspective, you can see why for me, in terms of my driving habits, it made absolutely no sense to drive an ICE car anymore. It's a losing proposition. So that's why I switched over. And I'm glad I switched over from a financial advantage point of view, but certainly from a lifestyle point of view, from a climate change point of view, from a ease of driving point of view, from a lifestyle point of view, from a change in perspective point of view, this car, I can say, and it sounds a little bit cheesy when I say it, but I can say that it has literally 
changed the way that I drive uh, and the way that I think about automobiles in the future. Now, final words. Um, I want to talk about some positives and quirks about the M3. I actually got locked out once and you think, how's that possible? I left my mobile phone in the car and the Tesla comes with a credit card style key card system and I left it in the car and I just, you know, supercharged the car and when I removed the supercharger, it automatically locked because presumably it thought that I was some sort of thief. Um, so the way that I got unlocked, which was actually pretty interesting, was I went to the shopping center management and I said, look, I drive a Tesla and I'm locked out of my car. And the lady said to me, oh, this happens quite a lot. Don't worry. We know we know exactly what to do. So they put me through to the 1-800 number, which goes to some guy in Fremont in California. And he asked me some questions about the car and he remotely unlocked it for me in front of me. He just pressed this button in America and the car just unlocked. And I said, is that through the internet? And he said, yeah, the car can communicate um, via the internet to the head office. So they've got stats and data about this sort of stuff and I found that quite fascinating and again it's kind of like unlocking a computer or a phone from abroad voice activation uh, is actually very very accurate again reminds me of Siri in the iPhone or Apple products so I use voice activation for all navigation for calling for changing my climate control because it just works scheduled departure I've talked about it before I program it to start the car at 6 a.m. in the morning and uh, it knows when to charge. It knows how much to charge. It syncs with my calendar and it just goes. The auto mirror close. So when you enter a specific place, you know, a tight car spot or garage or car wash or whatever it is, and you want your mirrors to automatically fold, you can program it in the car. You can program multiple locations. And then when you approach that location, the mirrors fold. So I programmed it for two or three different car washes that I use regularly. And as I approach the car wash, it just mirrors just automatically fold. In the Model S, the same thing happens with the mirrors, but also can happen with the suspension because you don't want to scratch the underside of your Model S. That feature is not enabled in the Model 3. Camping mode, um, basically... The Model 3 has a room for a double bed mattress in the back if you fold the seats. So you can actually go camping and sleep in the car. And because the roof is completely glass, you can stare at the night sky if you really wanted to. The car has built-in entertainment. So YouTube, Google, internet, games, because it's got built-in 4G and Wi-Fi. So technically, as I'm driving, I can listen to myself on Spotify, which is kind of lame. But... The car has built-in uh, internet. Um, and the other cool feature that I use quite often is when I'm having a bit of a break when I'm driving is... Oh, sorry, not when I'm driving, when I'm having a break from driving, so I park my car, is when I'm watching YouTube on my phone, I can flick it to the Tesla screen. So the Model 3 has a screen that controls everything about the car. I flick it to the screen and the YouTube appears on the screen. So I'm sharing my mobile phone screen with the Tesla M3 screen, basically. So that was interesting. The minimalistic interior, I get used to it so much that when I actually get into my wife's car, for example, which is a nice car, um, the interior is quite archaic. So again, it's something that you just get used to. Regen braking, driving in the city versus highways. Like I said, um, regen braking in the city, it makes the car very efficient, but in the highway, it makes it very inefficient. An autopilot is not as efficient as human driving. 
sentry mode. Um, so basically, it's got this mode where you can park your car and the car's cameras, which has eight cameras around the car, becomes your security camera. So if someone comes near it, the car blinks at the person, so it flashes at them and starts recording as well. And on the screen, it says the car is recording. So potential thieves, etc., um, you know, have a very clear warning that they're being recorded. So I've used a sentry mode wherever I park the car that I'm not familiar with, at the airport, shopping centers, etc., in case someone scratches it or, you know, there's some, you know, um, maliciousness to it. But most people that I found actually are very careful and they actually look inside the car and that's when the screen goes on and it says sentry mode is being recorded and they kind of just freak out and just, you know, make a run for it because a lot of them are very intrigued about the car. So this happened to me at the airport where I came back after a week off and um, it had recorded every single interaction with humans um, in that week. Um, and I was just going through the video and, you know, little kids coming up to the car and looking at it. They're very perplexed. People look at it, look at it from the outside, look inside because of the minimalistic interior. And um, that all gets captured, uh, which is which is good. Good security feature. And it's also quite nice to see that people are intrigued and are interested in electric vehicles, which is great to see. Air vents in the car, there is none in the sense that you can't see them. They're all hidden, so that's interesting. And there's got digital vent control, so there's nothing in terms of buttons inside the car. There's only about two or three buttons inside the car, so that's interesting. Uh, the glass roof, surprisingly strong. I parked my car at work and there was a hailstorm and I was really worried that this the glass roof may actually crack. It didn't. It's actually quite strong. Um, and I think it can withstand hailstorms, is what Tesla have told me. So... Uh, I haven't had to change my roof. Um, so again, surprising. Um, you don't need to start the engine after you park the car for a very long time. I get asked this a lot um, in public car stations and charge points. Do I need to, you know, if I go to the airport and park it for a week, does that mean the engine will go flat? Well, there is no engine, so I can park it for as long as I want and the battery just doesn't go flat. It just gets used up by the sentry mode. Um, so you don't need to, like in ice cars, you kind of need to start the car every few days, otherwise it kind of goes flat. Um, and I've engaged autopilot in very, very heavy traffic on the Monash and Eastern Freeway in Melbourne, and it handles it like a boss. And again, I was quite shocked. Most ice cars don't allow you to engage um, radar cruise control uh, under the 30 kilometer limit, but in the Tesla, I've engaged it at very, very slow speeds, and it's not a problem. Now, I want to go on to the last little bit of the podcast, which is the annoying things about driving an M3, the Model 3, and that is regen braking can be quite annoying if you're not used to it. So the first few months, it really kind of annoyed me because it really does aggressively slow down the car. So you need to get used to it and be prepared for it. So if you're a car sickness person, this car is probably not right for you. The seats, if you're a little bit tall, um, the seats are perfect for me, but if you're a little bit tall, the angle of the knees may be uncomfortable because the bottom bit of the seat is a little bit smaller than the average car. The software updates, strangely enough, you get them every three to four weeks um, and you kind of feel disappointed if you don't get one because I'm on the Tesla online forums and everyone's like, oh, I've got the new software update and you quickly run to your car and go, oh, has it downloaded? Tesla pushed their software updates not to every single car all at once. They do it in a staged way. So you kind of go, oh, no, I didn't get it today. And, you know, am I a loser and all that sort of stuff. So it's a little bit little bit disappointing when you don't get your software updates, which is kind of annoying. Um, again, you know, really, it is a first world problem. Sentry mode. The battery use for sentry mode is actually quite high. 
So you've got to be a little bit careful. If you're going to park the car in a public place and go for long trips and come back after a week or two or three weeks, the sentry mode uses up a lot of battery. So I parked one week at the airport and I think I lost about you know, almost 15 to 20% of my battery um, uh, thanks to sentry mode. So you've got to be a little bit careful. So I charge it to 100% when I'm going to be parking it for long times. And the lastly, of course, uh, I've mentioned this before, speeding fines. Uh, very, very easy to do in the Tesla, in whichever Tesla you drive. And also very easy to do in electric cars because remember the relationship of acceleration is linear. So you find that the torque is instant. So you're very easily breaching the speeding rules quite often. So you've got to be a little bit careful and absolutely watch the speedometer because um, uh, I've had some near misses, dare I say. Now, some competitors and other EVs out there to the Tesla, I think it's important to talk about competitors. Um, again, I've got a Tesla. I mean, it's not the best EV out there, I'm sure. I'm sure there are other cars out there which are very good. You've got the BMW i3, which is 68 grand for 260 kilometer range. Hyundai Kona Electric, which is actually very good, only $59,000. And that got the highest range, 449 kilometers rated. Hyundai Ionic Electric, 48000 uh, dollars at 311 kilometer range. Nissan Leaf, which is 49,000 at a range of 270 kilometers. Renault Zoe, 47,000 at a range of 300 kilometers. So again, the cost of EVs are coming down. I think that's really important for people to understand. So in the next three to five years, I reckon we will reach a point where driving an ICE car for most people, most Australians would just not be efficient or effective and wouldn't make sense. Now, other more expensive brands for EVs, uh, you've got the Jaguar I-Pace, $124,000. Merck EQC, surprisingly expensive, $137,000. The Model S Tesla, $124,000. Model X Tesla, $133,000. These are all base prices, of course. And the Porsche Taycan, the formal pricing is pending in Australia, but we're looking at about $200,000 plus. It's already been released in other countries. And there's huge amounts of plug-in hybrids available. You know, what's coming up in the EV segment in the future is very exciting. We've got the Audi e-tron, the Ace Cargo EV, Ace Ute EV, Ace Urban EV, Mini Cooper EV, and the Volvo Polestar 2, which has got rave reviews in Europe. And technically, they are saying it's better than a Tesla Model 3. So watch out for that one when it hits Australia. It's already hitting the European markets and the American markets as well. So that's about it for this episode. Hopefully you've enjoyed it. This is the 12-month update on my personal experience of driving a Tesla Model 3 Standard Range Plus. You'll see more of these cars on the road. You'll see more EVs on the road, which is fantastic. Thank you very much for the questions, likes, and comments. And please make sure that you give me a five-star rating on Apple Podcast or any podcasting app that you're using. It really does help promote the podcast and the algorithm so more people can download, find it, and listen to it. And I promise if you write a creative review on one of these podcasting apps, then I will read it out um, for you in the next episode. So looking forward to some great reviews online about the podcast. Remember to also like the DevRaga Facebook page. Shout out to questions, comments, or topic suggestions. I'm also on Twitter now. Uh, I've been I've been wanting to go on Twitter for a long time, and uh, I'm on Twitter. So if you're interested tweet me. Uh, share this channel with family and friends. Uh, I'm available on all major podcasting applications. 
And remember, always pay yourself first. Take 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside. And remember, learn about arbitrage, learn about geo-arbitrage, and of course, do your sums on your transport costs. Who knows? An EV might be the way to go. And it's exciting that so many options are available now in Australia, and there are many more to come. And remember, EVs don't all need to be super expensive. They can be quite affordable. This is Devraga Personal Finance, episode 93. And as always, make sure you stay safe. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 